Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of Race. Guys, today we are on a mission. Yes, we need to get all the way to Arthur Jensen, Charles Murray, the bell curve. <gasps> yes, true. But wait, last time we said we'd pick up by talking about the organization that funded Arthur Jensen's research, the Pioneer Fund. So we got to talk about this shadowy research fund and the role it continues to play first. Yeah, I agree. But even before that, we need to address something we said on our last episode. We sort of raked psychology over the coals for its role in racist intelligence <laughs> testing, some of which admittedly is still done today. I wanted to just make the point that psychology has also been the source of some really important anti-racist work, including people like William H. Tucker, who we mentioned last time. Jefferson Fish, too. Yes. And much of the foundational work in understanding how prejudice works, like Brian Nozick's research on implicit bias, that's also out of psychology. So I don't want our listeners to get the impression that the field deserves a bad rap. Yeah, I guess that's fair. You can't paint the whole field just because there were racist people working in that field. Same in anthropology. And historians, too. Yeah. No, historians aren't racist. We don't have enough. <laughs> we started the series on race and IQ. Sometime long ago in a place <laughs> far away. Exactly. <laughs> and we talked about the origins of intelligence testing in the UK and the US. And that was basically coming up with that term IQ itself. And then last episode, we touched on early 20th century eugenics in Britain and how British psychologists, including uh, Cyril Burt and Raymond Cattell, how they kept intelligence testing alive to further their eugenic aims and, frankly, their racist aims. And then we brought up one individual in particular, Ashley Montague, who pushed back against the correlation between race and IQ. So all that is to be said that we have put out quite a few of the major pieces of this big puzzle. Now, hopefully today we can start putting this puzzle together. Hopefully. The piece that we're missing is this Pioneer Fund. And as Tucker, the Tucker that Joe was just talking about, phrases it, this is the funding mechanism of scientific racism. Not just in the U.S., but also in the U.K. It's a very widespread fund that underwrites racism in many different forms from the 1930s right through to today. To understand the importance of this fund, you have to start with its founder and funder, Snidely Whiplash. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Wycliffe Draper. Draper came from a prominent Massachusetts manufacturing family. How prominent? The company was the largest of its kind in the world, and one of Draper's uncles was a congressman and ambassador to Italy, and another uncle was the governor of Massachusetts. That checks out. It was pretty prominent. So there was a lot of money in this family, and when he initially inherited the family fortune in 1923, Draper decided he wanted to use this money to promote eugenic science and policy. All right, so what did he do? He got together with a fellow named Charles Davenport, who was the director of the Eugenics Records Office. And Davenport had a lot of ideas for funding. But what Draper finally agreed he would pay for was to fund a study of miscegenation, that is, interracial reproduction in Jamaica, of all places. Oh, OK. You're explaining the origin of the really important book by Davenport and Stegerde called Race Crossing in Jamaica. Is that right? Absolutely. With, without Draper's money, it probably doesn't happen. That money supported Stegert's fieldwork and Davenport's pseudo-analysis, where he tried to show that the children of interracial couples were intellectually inferior. 
it wasn't until significantly after this that Draper incorporated the Pioneer Fund in 1937, and he went back to the Eugenic Records office and recruited Harry Laughlin, Davenport's second-in-command there, to serve as the first president of the fund. We definitely should talk more about Harry Laughlin in a future episode. He was really key in the American anti-immigration legislation that passed in the 1920s. And his lobbying inspired Nazi physicians to draft the Nuremberg Codes. Well, absolutely. Laughlin had some very serious Nazi connections, and he used those to introduce Draper to high-level Nazis in the 1930s. This ultimately led to Draper paying for the distribution of fascist white supremacist literature throughout the U.S. in the run-up to World War II, even swaying some congressmen in the process. But then the war came, right? World War II to you youngsters. I'm having deja vu. (laughs) Well, the war came, and Americans saw the horrors of race science played out in the Holocaust. Isn't this when Ashley Montague started all of his anti-racist science stuff that we talked about last time? Well, he had actually started long before the war, but during the war is when Montague really ramped up the case against racist ideology. And after the war, he became a major anti-race spokesperson. Right. So this is the point where Montague and other anti-racist scientists gathered at the newly formed United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. That's UNESCO for short. In that hotel in Paris that had been the headquarters of the Allied Command. Oh, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It is cool. (laughs) So, So these guys got together. There were about eight of them to craft a formal statement on what was then called the race question. In other words, how should the world view race and racism in the wake of this global, racially motivated tragedy? They released a statement that addressed head-on the question of whether race and intelligence were linked or not. Here's what it had to say. Eric, quote reader, please do us the honor. I feel feel pigeonholed. I need to break out of my role. (laughs) You can sing this instead. (laughs) Uh, Wherever it has been possible to make allowances for differences in environmental opportunities, intelligence tests have shown essential similarity in mental characters among all human groups. The scientific material available to us at present does not justify the conclusion that inherited genetic differences are a major factor in producing the differences between the cultures and cultural achievements of different peoples or groups, end quote. So that's directly from the 1950 statement. And after that part, it goes on to call race a social myth. It states that the Holocaust has shown that race is a dangerous social construction. And they even propose that we just do away with the term race and use the term ethnicity instead to talk about human groups. Sounds like another one of our mythical happy endings. I'm afraid not. (laughs) Dear Montague, this letter is confidential. Although you may know the news contained therein already, the protest against the UNESCO race statement of yours wait, have wait, caused wait, wait, UNESCO... Wait, 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 what is this? This is the secret letter about the UNESCO statement. A secret letter? How did you get a secret letter? Superpowers. You get those in my field. No, 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 no. Seriously, what is that? All right. Okay, so the famous fruit fly geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky, who we talked about last time, He writes this secret letter to Ashley Montague in February of 1951. I I use my secret historian powers to get a copy. Ooh, so you mean right after the 1950 statement came out? Yeah, yeah. So apparently there was a pretty severe backlash to Montague's insistence that intelligence is essentially similar across racial lines. And in fact, just one year later, after the initial UNESCO statement came out, 14 other scientists 
Mostly, this time, geneticists and physical anthropologists gathered again at UNESCO to draft a new statement. Oh, no, don't tell me. Actually, thankfully, at least according to this secret letter of Dobzhansky's here, uh, Dobzhansky intervenes to get his friend, the geneticist Leslie Dunn, to head up the 1951 UNESCO revisionists. Now, Dunn mostly did side with Montague, and frankly, it was a good thing that he was put in charge because according to the secret letter, it was C.D. Darlington who, as we mentioned last episode, had worked alongside Cyril Burt to establish the biological basis of inferior intelligence among Africans. Darlington was the original choice to head this group. So as a result of that shift, Dobzhansky was able to manufacture this rebuttal wasn't completely racist? Well, it's a mixed bag, right? So this group got together in the first place because there were lots of complaints that the original statement was too social sciencey and too constructivist and that it didn't represent the state of the field in terms of genetics and physical anthropology. So it does backpedal on Montague's original assertion that race is entirely socially constructed. It even says, and I'm not going to make you read this quote, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> quote, it says, some types of innate capacity for intellectual and emotional responses are commoner in one human group than in another. But it also concedes, quote, within different populations consisting of many human types, one will find approximately the same range of temperament and intelligence. End quote. So I think to the everyday observer in the 1950s, this revision might not look all that different than Montague's original version. But there's one crucial difference, and that is that in several places, it cracks the door back open for those who aren't yet convinced that race really is a social construction. It's really subtle, but really important. So it could have been worse. Montague's original goal to discredit racist science still carried the day with this group when it was combined with a newly empowered civil rights movement just a few years later in 1954. Oh, 54. Isn't that the year the crew cuts recorded Shaboom Shaboom? I love yeah, that da, song. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I love it. It's the best song. Well, actually, I was thinking about the landmark Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. That was pretty important, too. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. Brown v. Board was pretty important. Actually, it's kind of cool. If, if you dig into the text that uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote in his decision in Brown v. Board, you come to footnote number 11, which is a very social science-y footnote. Yeah, and it's a really kind of a weird angle for the court to take. This has been referred to as an infamous footnote because the decision didn't flow from the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment. Oh, that's the one that makes everyone a citizen regardless of race, right? Yeah, exactly. But in a very novel situation, instead, the court based the decision on the social science about the psychological harm of segregation in schools. Footnote 11 is a list of works that supported Chief Justice Warren's claim that segregation hurt kids emotionally. It sparked an immediate backlash that went right along with the backlash to the first UNESCO anti-racism statement. And who was there, do you think, with financial means to back all kinds of racially motivated research and propaganda but our buddy Wycliffe Graper and the Pioneer Fund? Bum, bum, bum. Uh, we need at least one of those per episode. I'm really glad we got one of those in. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so if we need to go the route that's going to take us someday to Arthur Jensen and the bell curve, 
Who's the next person we have to discuss here? The founder of Delta Airlines, uh, Carlton Putnam. Wow. Wait, you mean Carlton Kuhn, the physical anthropologist? No, he's a distant cousin of Carlton Kuhn. But Carlton Putnam wrote a very famous book in 1961 called Race and Reason. Oh, I've heard of this. This is the one that's it's like a Q&A session, right? It's the one that white supremacists actually still use all the time as like a sort of a white supremacy cookbook of ideas, right? Yeah, that, that's right. It, that's the book. In the book, he takes on Ashley Montague's mentor, Franz Boas, saying that his conclusions about race can't be right because Boas is Jewish. He comes from an inferior race, and what? all of his students at Columbia are also Jewish, and they come from an inferior race. And then Putnam goes on to argue about the basically the anthropology that was supposedly supporting footnote 11 in the Brown v. Board decision. But how in the world did he actually argue that segregation doesn't hurt kids in school? I've heard of this book, but I haven't actually read it. He doesn't. He does something much more devious. Actually, this is a thing that we're going to see again and again over the 20th century after Brown v. Board. Which is very bizarre because it sounds like he's going back to the 19th century and the, and the measurement stuff we talked about at the beginning of these these episodes and also back in our polygenism episode, Putnam cited psychologists who worked in intelligence testing like we talked about in the previous episodes and also an anatomists who looked at brain size and shape. And Putnam concluded that black people have lower innate intelligence or brain shapes that suggest lesser ability in terms of having smaller frontal lobes. Eric, are you ready to uh, pull a quote for us? I get like the really racist quotes. <laughs> you do. You get them all. All right. All right well, that, that's the fate of a historian. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. All right. So here's here's Putnam's quote. Personally, I feel only affection for the Negro, but there are facts that have to be faced. Any man with two eyes in his head can observe a Negro settlement in the Congo, can compare this settlement with London or Paris, and can draw his own conclusions regarding relative levels of character or intelligence or that combination of character and intelligence, which is civilization. Yeah, that sounds old, all right. Gobbano, anyone? Seriously. Yeah, you, you see what he's doing. This is 1961, okay? We're already starting the civil rights era. But his argument is this 19th century argument that Africans in Africa haven't created any civilizations, so they're intellectually inferior. And their brains are the wrong size and shape. So it doesn't matter what kind of schooling they get. There's no environment that will make them equal to whites. Hmm. And the key thing here is he, he couches the whole thing with the, I'm not a racist. I feel only affection for the Negro, my best friends, you know. Uh, yes. And of course, this is something we hear repeated today all the time. Like, I'm not racist, but it's got to be more than a coincidence that black people always score lower on the SATs than white people do. You know, it's funny. Not ha-ha funny. No, not ha-ha funny. But it, it's funny that you immediately hear this language pop up in other prominent scientific places at the time. For instance, in 1946, Henry Garrett was president of the American Psychological Association, the APA. And he was also chair of Columbia University's psychology department. And he used to give hmm. statements like this all the time, including in court, in the testimony in the case of Davis v. County School Board of Prince Edward County. That case, the Davis case, turned out to be one of the five cases that got combined into the big case, Brown v. Board of Education. 
Garrett said school integration would threaten the, in his words, racial hygiene of whites. In, in fact, here's the money quote from Garrett, and I will read my own quote, I guess. No matter how low in a socioeconomic sense an American white may be, his ancestors built the civilizations of Europe. And no matter how high, again, in a socioeconomic sense, a Negro may be, his ancestors were and his kinsmen still are savages in an African jungle. Free and general race mixture of the Negro and white groups in this country would inevitably be not only dysgenic, but socially disastrous. It, it's so old. I mean, it sounds like it's the 19th century still. It, that's nuts. Please tell me these guys weren't unopposed. Oh, no, they, they definitely were opposed. Garrett faced opposition all the time on this stuff. In fact, he left Columbia. He joined UVA, the University of Virginia, in the 1950s. But he couldn't get tenure in the psych department because of these views. And then he went on a diatribe in which, in 1961, he wrote the article, The Equalitarian Dogma. Oh, I know this one. This is the one that claims that black intellectual inferiority is biological, but that these naive social scientists... Uh And don't forget us in the humanities. We're equally guilty of this. Yes, yes, you guys too. We are all enforcing some kind of iron-fisted dogma against the poor defenseless biologists who know that racial differences in intellect are fixed and aren't afraid to say it. Do you, do you guys, do you actually have an iron fist? And if so, would you, would you be willing to share your iron fist with me? Jim, is that what you get when you become a professor emeritus, an iron fist? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, iron fist. That's why we hang around the department after they stop paying us. It's all the raw power you gain when you level up to emeritus. That sounds pretty great. Iron fist, I mean... Uh, back to uh, back to the uh, main yeah back, back to reality. On track. Notice again that Garrett's claim is, "Hey, I'm only reporting science here. There's no racism or bias in this. This is a claim that you hear over and over and over again, not just throughout the second half of the 20th century, but also right on into the 21st century and today." Yeah, in fact, Henry Garrett will gather together four like-minded scientists. And they start an ostensibly peer-reviewed journal called Mankind Quarterly to promote the notion that people of African descent were intellectually inferior. And they use the language of physical anthropology to do it. This is a journal that's still being published today, by the way. So who were some of the other founders of Mankind Quarterly? Yeah, the whole bunch is a pretty unsavory cast. You got G. Robert Gare. He's a Scottish anthropologist and a fascist who defended apartheid in South Africa. And then you got Roger Pearson not to be confused with Carl Pearson, Roger Pearson, who was a British economist who claimed to be an anthropologist and founded the Fascist Northern League to promote Nazi racial ideas. Our friendly neighbors down at the University of Southern Mississippi gave him an honorary doctorate just a few years ago. After getting rid of some untenured faculty in religion, he hired two pioneer-funded neo-Nazis. Oh, my God. And he also helped publish some of the most racist stuff of Raymond Cattell, who we talked about in the last episode, in Mankind Quarterly. But probably the most egregious thing about Pearson was that he allowed Hans Gunther to publish his race science under a pseudonym. Gunther was called the Pope of Race, Rassenpops, in Hitler's Germany. It's crazy. Former Nazis pop up all over the place in Mankind Quarterly's early days. A guy named R. Ruggles Gates was a Canadian fascist who wrote Nazi propaganda during World War II. He gets to publish in Mankind Quarterly. And my favorite is Otmar von Verschuer, who was the Dutch-German, I guess you'd call him anthropologist or physician. He was actually a mentor to Josef Mengele, who was the doctor at Auschwitz. 
And Vershoor was actually an editorial board member on Mankind Quarterly. Good Lord. It was like a collection of leftover angry racists and Nazis. But because it was funded by Draper's Pioneer Fund, it had the ability to keep on going. Pioneer Fund, there it is again. And they were also echoing words that they had heard in the halls of power in Washington, D.C. The so-called Southern Manifesto opposing racial integration in schools that was stipulated by Brown v. Board was signed by 101 senators and representatives in wow. 1956. In fact, of the senators of Southern states, only Al Gore Sr. and Estes Kefauver and Linda B. Johnson refused to sign it. Draper's pioneer money was behind that effort also, as Jeez. it was behind the founding of the International Association for the Advancement of Ethnology and Eugenics, the IAAEE. 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 I think there's a 1960s song that goes like that. And that organization then became the publisher of Mankind Quarterly and a whole series of books promoting the idea that races were inherently unequal in intelligence. And this started in the 60s and pretty much continues. While the Pioneer crew was looking around for legitimate scientists that they could use as front people, they found an enormously important spokesperson, William Shockley. Wait, wait a second. William Shockley was like the Bell Lab guy who won a share of the Nobel Prize in 56 for his work on semiconductors in the transistor effect, right? Yeah, isn't his work basically the beginning of Silicon Valley as we know it today? Well, yeah, like many Nobel Award winners, unfortunately thought that since he did physics, he could do anything else. So he moved into promoting the genetics of racial differences in intelligence. Now, some of this stuff is material that he picked up from Cyril Burt's work, but he had a whole series of ideas on his own. Uh, including notions about the level of skin color being directly related to the level of intelligence. Shockley came to the attention of the folks at the Pioneer Fund when he gave a talk in 1965 at a Nobel-sponsored conference on genetics and the future of man. This was followed up by an interview that was published in U.S. News and World Report, which was extremely favorable to the racists during this time period. He promoted a belief in genetic deterioration, especially as a result of the social programs that Lyndon Johnson had tried to enact with his Great Society. The Great Society was this the name for the set of programs that Johnson introduced on the heels of the 64 Civil Rights Act. And the idea was to address racial inequality and poverty really broadly, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And Henry Garrett, who we talked about a minute ago, is one of the founders of the journal Mankind Quarterly convinced Shockley to put a, a blurb on the book jacket of Carlton Putnam's Race and Reality. His blurb said, basically, I'm not a racist, but there do exist significant genetic differences in the distribution of potential intelligence between races. I mean, this is really nothing more than the marshalling of supposed objectivity of science to promote racism. Uh, exactly. That was the whole goal. They were looking for people like this that they could put out in front of the public. So Shockley began receiving funding from both the Pioneer Fund, and he also got direct gifts from Draper himself, who would write him huh. checks every year. In wow. 1966 and 67, possibly the most important use Shockley ever made of any of his Pioneer Funds was to use these monies to help court Arthur Jensen. We're there. We got to Jensen. Okay. Hey, we did it. <laughs> oh, wait, we're not done. <laughs> Jensen at that time was on a Guggenheim Fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And 
it's important to point out here that in spite of spending two years postdocing with Cyril Burt's mentee, Hans Eysenck, Jensen's earlier work paid a very large price to the importance of family and environmental situations. So, for instance, in a paper that came out just after his uh, stint at Stanford, he published this quote. Eric, you want to give us the quote? It's not racist. If you don't want to, I'll read it. Okay, yeah, it's not racist. Okay. The fact that (laughs) Negroes and Mexicans are disproportionately represented in the lower end of the socioeconomic status scale cannot be interpreted as evidence of poor genetic potential, for we know that there have been and are still powerful racial barriers to social mobility. This was a paper that Jensen had written before he took his Guggenheim and went to visit with Shockley at Stanford. So he was still making, this is very clearly an environmental argument for intelligence. So wait a minute, you're saying Jensen, Jensen of the tear gas story, didn't actually believe that race and IQ were linked at first? Don't get your hopes up, Joe. It's clear that something happened critically that year uh, that, uh, that he had his Guggenheim down at Stanford. The same year that that paper was published, Actually, one month before the paper came out, Jensen spoke at the California Advisory Council of Educational Research. The title of that talk is How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement? Listen to just how much he had changed between the time he submitted that paper for publication that Eric just read and this quote after he spent the time with Shockley. Eric, do us the honor. All right. So it appears that forces are at work, which may create and widen the genetic aspect of average difference in ability between the Negro and the white populations, with the possible consequence that no amount of equality of opportunity or improvement of educational facilities will result in equality of achievement or in any improvement of the chances for the Negro population to compete on equal terms. Gee, so that is like a complete 180. Yeah. So one way or another, Jensen must have really quickly adopted the stuff that Cyril Burt and Hans Eysenck had been preaching once he was hanging out with Shockley. That's what it looks like, judging from his, his actual work, you know. From this point forward, Jensen would forevermore be a key player in the Pioneer Fund's project of proving that African-descended peoples were intellectually inferior to whites. His was the major work that was being protested when I was tear-gassed at Berkeley in 1969, remember? Right, way back in episode one of the race and intelligence series we've been doing lately. I can barely, barely remember. Handball. Handball! Shockley mass-mailed to the National Academy of Sciences, trying to gin up support for overturning Brown versus Board. This was late in the 60s. Nobody really paid any attention to him at that point. But as Jensen began to build up an audience, even having his how much can we boost IQ go through the peer review process at the Harvard Educational Review, Shockley saw an even better opening. He contacted journalists before Jensen's paper came out and was able to stimulate positive coverage in a Newsweek article entitled Born Dumb and a U.S. News and World Report article titled Can Negroes Learn the Way Whites Do? Findings of a Top Authority. (laughs) Even Time magazine covered him, though it took a slightly more agnostic point of view towards Shockley with their article Intelligence. Is there a racial difference? Picket against Jensenism at Psychology Today office. 
Wednesday, January 16th, 12 noon. Uh, Eric, are you using your magic powers again? Yes. Um, while you guys were talking a minute ago, I went to an archive <laughs> using history magic, and I found a flyer, which is advertising a protest at the journal Psychology Today on Wednesday, January 16th, 1974. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of protest that I ran into that day at Berkeley. The, the biggest attack on Jensen always seemed to come not from the mainstream media, but from students and educators. When Jensen published his 123-page article in the Harvard Educational Review, this was a student-run journal, and at first the students refused to give him reprints of the article uh. because they wanted to wait and include a set of dissenting replies from other experts that were coming out in the next issue. They wanted to make a full booklet of racism and anti-racism that they oh. would hand out as the reprints. That's pretty smart. But they got slapped down by their faculty mentors <laughs> and oh. were told that they had to go ahead and send him the reprints. And then the Pioneer Fund stepped in and made over 2,000 Xerox copies of the 123-page article Oof. that they then sent out to members of the National Academy of Sciences, members of Congress, Vice President Spiro Agnew, director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, Yikes. and to members of the Supreme Court, among others. By late summer of 1969, the New York Times Magazine had coined a new term. The title of that article is Jensenism, ah. noun, the theory that IQ is largely determined by the genes. So we have a new word, Jensenism, and hence the title of Eric's magically obtained flyer, resisting it's it. Exactly. They wrote it in all caps, too. <laughs> I don't blame them. By the time Draper died in 1972, Jensen had completely eclipsed Shockley. Since by that time, it was obvious that Shockley wasn't any good at politicking. He couldn't get along with people. I mean, this goes all the way back to his Bell Lab days when they didn't put him on the initial application for patent for the transistor. Yeah, he was huh. sort of a famous jerk. Oh, yeah. Well, the, Intel was founded by eight people that couldn't stand him and left his company. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, Shockley was not going to be able to convince anybody because he just all he succeeded in was pissing people off. So Jensen set up an institute for the study of educational differences with him being the president and his wife was the vice president. And this was just a device so that he could receive Pioneer Fund money without oh. having to go through UC Berkeley. Between 1973 and 1999, Jensen received nearly $2.5 million adjusted wow. for inflation Jeez. without the bother of having to meet IRB guidelines or any other restrictions that UC Berkeley might have put on those dollars. Man, I wish I had a fairy god person who would just give me $2.5 million for my research. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm glad someone protested him, though I'm sorry you got tear gas, Jim. So we've almost gotten to our stopping point for today, which is the 1994 book, The Bell Curve, by psychologist Richard Herrnstein and political scientist Charles Murray. Yeah, that, that was an important book for me. It is really what made me think that I had to put together the Anthropology 275 course on race, the one that Joe eventually took over. Yeah, Bell Curve was important for me, too. I actually remember standing in a bookstore reading it and for what seemed like hours because it's a fat book. So why don't we describe it a little bit for listeners who haven't read it or heard of it before? Yeah, even though it is big and fat, it is not really that complicated. Herrnstein and Murray basically think there is general intelligence, 
little G. <laughs> yeah. And that general intelligence is apportioned by race. And class. They they really put together a number of the puzzle pieces that we've been laying out through these last episodes. They assume that intelligences for each race fall into a normal distribution. You mean that most people fall somewhere around the average intelligence level, but there are fewer people at either extreme of very high intelligence or very low intelligence. Yeah, that, that's what that means. In the infamous chapter 13, Herenstein and Murray posit that there is some overlap to some degree, but the overall range of intelligence in Africans and their American descendants is lower than the range for white people, and white people have a lower range than Asian people do, and that this intellectual endowment is essentially stuck because biology. Ba-ba! Ah, that's the bell curve distribution. This is the stuff that even Francis Galton used to work with. Come on, Charles Murray. Yeah. You know, again, like we keep hearing, they claimed it wasn't racist because they didn't put whites at the top and because they said there is some racial overlap. Did they even define what they meant by these groups and terms like inferior and superior? Or were they just like, well, your skin and face look like X, so you are an X. And there's a number that equals this intelligence thing. The same stuff that we've just been seeing over and over on the podcast, or did they move it along at all? There's a veneer in this book of statistics. But we all know there's good statistics and bad statistics. They have the two basic assumptions. One, that intelligence is a single unitary capacity and that the races are real biological groups that have genetic differences, including genetic differences in intelligence. It's the same pseudoscience that we've been talking about since we started the podcast way back in the 20th century. <laughs> Hernstein and Murray were not supported by the Pioneer Fund directly, but the work that they drew on in the book was heavily Pioneer Fund based. Mm, no surprise there. Richard Lynn was the primary source of scientific proof on the heritability of intelligence differences by race. Lynn was a psychologist, and he received about three-quarters of a million dollars from the Pioneer Fund between 1971 and 1996. That wasn't the end of his involvement with it because he became a co-director of the Pioneer Fund in 2012, and he served on the editorial board of Mankind Quarterly for quite a while. He published many books and articles about racial differences in intelligence, supposedly being the source of differences in economic development between countries even. Lynn is cited 24 times in the bell curve. And in fact, in the preface, Hernstein and Murray describe him as a leader and scholar of racial and ethnic differences. After the book came out, Lynn was one of the chief defenders of the book, including signing the letter that appeared in the New York Times defending it. We we shouldn't leave it there. We we have to note there was an immediate and a pretty substantial backlash to the bell curve, much more than any of the earlier points in the history when the race and intelligence stuff was introduced. Herenstein was dead by the time the book came out, but Charles Murray kept returning to the same themes that were in bell curve in later books, like income inequality and IQ, uh, the underclass revisited, the more recent book coming apart, the state of white America, nineteen sixty to twenty ten. That one came out in 2012. So, I mean, Murray is still returning to these ideas today. Yeah, definitely. The book Coming Apart sort of reintroduced him to the world apart from the bell curve. And so Murray was invited to give a public lecture at Middlebury College right in the winter of 2017. So just last year, student protesters shut it down. I'm not sure there was any tear gas or shotgun blast this time, Jim. 
<laughs> but then Sam Harris interviewed him on, on his very famous podcast, Waking Up, which led to a backlash by Ezra Klein. And hopefully this sounds familiar to our podcast listeners, because this is what we talked about in our Flash episode last spring. Right, Eric? Flash! Again, the book is just a rehashing of all of the ideas that started back in our first episode on race and IQ and go right through now drawing on pioneer fund backed research. So we start and end this entire gargantuan episode today with the dirty money of Boycliff Draper and the pioneer fund. This is amazing. This stuff really isn't going away, is it? And it is still funding white supremacist politics in this country, not just research and publications, but actual political activism. Uh, for instance, there was a good deal of pioneer money be behind Proposition 187 in California. Which was? Which was the effort in California to basically make immigrants persona non grata in the state. Well, so next time we're going to have to discuss the trajectory of the IQ and race stuff since the bell curve. It turns out the story ain't over, not by a long shot. But until then, I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Jim, the old guy. <laughs> and you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and say hello to us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening and have happy holidays. And we will see you again in 2019. Go ahead. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> Back to life, back, back to reality. Back. <laughs> Please go That's ahead, Jim. Good song.